What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these ND Hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. I'm here with Spencer Fry, the founder of Podia. Spencer, how's it going? Doing very well. Thanks for having me today. Thanks for coming on. Podia is an extremely cool company. It's very relevant to the movements that we see going on today. On your website, you describe it as everything you need to sell courses, webinars, downloads, and community. So it's kind of like this one-stop shop to support creators and entrepreneurs. Yep, that's correct. And do you mind if I ask, like, how do you how do you measure Podia's success in terms of like revenue or growth or or you know just good feelings? Like, how's Podia doing today? You know. In, in all different ways we measure it. So one of the things that's been really great recently is that I've been measuring it based on how many of my employees have been buying houses, which has been really, really cool. I think we've had four or five people buy a house in the last two years. Oh, wow. Our t- yeah, and our team is only 27 people. Cool. So, so that's one sort of measurement that, that I like to, like to use, but also, you know, obviously revenue is important, headcount at the company, you know, the number of creators we have, the number of products they're selling, the, not, the amount of revenue they're making, you know, the number of audience members they have, et cetera. So right. lots of different metrics we look at. Right. Yeah. And your website, you say you've got 50,000 plus creators creating on Podia. And obviously to support a team of 27 people, you guys are doing pretty well. Can I ask, why, do, why don't you disclose your revenue? I, I know you've written about this <laughs> online. It's, in fact, I love interviewing people like you because you have a blog sure. written so many different articles over the last like, <laughs> 10, 12 years. And I know it's been a little stagnant recently, but I got to come back to it. I know I'm reading blog posts that you wrote in like 2010. I'm like, what do you think about this? <laughs> like that was 11 years yeah. ago, bro. But 10 years ago, you wrote disclosing your finances. And I think back then it wasn't that popular to do. Peldy from Balsamic was doing it. I interviewed him on the podcast. He was sort of a leader in the sort of trans- transparent revenue sharing space. I think Squarespace and 37 Signals to some extent were sharing their revenue. And in your blog post, you kind of weigh the advantages of sharing and the disadvantages of sharing. Mm-hmm. And then your conclusion, the last section just says, don't do it. <laughs> uh, and that's where you are today. You're not sharing your revenue with Podia. Why not? So we do say that we're profitable because we are profitable. So I think that's almost like a, be- a better benchmark than saying like how much revenue you make. You know, I, kn- I know plenty of companies that are, you know, making 50, 100, 250 million dollars a year, right. um, but are also losing 30, 40 million dollars yep. a year too. So for us, partly we don't share because we're a private company and we do have a lot of competitors in our space. And I think just, you know, you never want to give them anything. <laughs> you don't want to give them any kind of like insight into how you're, you know, building your product, your marketing, you know, how well you're doing, because they might come to you and see your, your software and say, oh, look, they've launched these features. Maybe that's why their revenue is spiking uh, this quarter or whatever. So, you know, I just kind of play the behind the scenes, you know, we're not, we're not going to say anything stance with revenue these days. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of nerve-wracking to have competitors nipping at your heels and copying everything that you do. Yeah. It'd be very yeah. annoying. Yeah. It, it, I mean, to be honest, though, at the same time, I love looking at other people's revenue. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, for example, like ConvertKit displays mm-hmm. their revenue openly on bare metrics. And, you know, I'll, I'll probably take a look at that two or three times a year, kind of see how their, their year's going. I think one thing that's interesting about that for us, too, is that while we're not competitors with them, we are both serving creators. So mm-hmm. it's a nice way to sort of see how the market is is doing right. for other people. So yeah, so that's one company I do look at. 
Yeah, Nathan Barry is super transparent. Are you on his yeah. uh, mailing list? He's got two. Uh, I'm not. No. Ooh, you should sign <laughs> up. We are Twitter Twitter friends. He's got a mailing list where it's kind of like just sort of like I don't know the generic like oh here's like my, my insights and my favorite blog posts etc. Yeah. And then he's got like a semi secret mailing list Ooh. that I can't remember how you get on it. I think you have to be part of his normal mailing list, and every now mm-hmm. and then he emails a link to that one, and I think it costs money. And and that one he just shares everything. He's just yeah. like, here's questionable tax strategies that I might be using, and here's you know, exactly how much money I'm making and how I'm thinking about blah, 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 blah. And it's just so addictive to yeah. read somebody sharing like that much about their life. Because it's, it's these kind of things like everybody has money and has to make decisions about how to spend it or how to earn it. And almost everybody is just like holds that information very close to the chest. I think that's one of the reasons why so many founders share their revenue today, because it's such an easy way to get attention from readers. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's an amazing marketing strategy, you know? I mean, there, there's probably a dozen people outside of my company who know our revenue. So, I mean, it, mm. it's not that I'm not sharing it with anyone. I'll, I'll share it there. with friends. Yeah, I'm, I'm sharing it with friends. Uh, typically, you know, I'm looking for some advice and, and uh, revenue is always like a part of the equation for any part of the business that you're working on. So it, it's not that it's only me. And of course, all my team knows it and we share all of our numbers um, with them and we, we share our board meetings and board decks with them mm-hmm. as well. Cool. Well, 27 people, at least five homeowners, profitable. <laughs> you can surmise that you're doing super well. You're making millions of dollars with this product. And I know you've been, you've got a lot of experience. Like this is not your first rodeo. You've been running internet startups, I think since you were like 11 years old, which is crazy. Yeah. How does that happen? 90s. <laughs> um, so a bunch of different things happened in my life. Um, the first one was that both my parents are professors at Yale and my dad took a job there um, where we actually had housing on campus when I was 11 years old. So I immediately went from like an AOL dial-up modem into basically a dedicated T3 line directly into our house. So um, some of the older listeners might know what that is, but basically I had incredible internet speed. And also the, the, the layout of our house meant that I had kind of my own room really far away from my parents. So I could always be on the computer, uh, always be doing internet things and so on. And so I just got addicted. And then pretty much most of my uh, high school years, I was working on different things, different like products. How old are you? Uh, 37. Okay. So you're uh, three years older than me. I'm 34. So yeah, Yeah. it was around the same time that I was on the internet. This is mid nineties. Parents had no idea what kids could even get up to on the internet because <laughs> I had the same setup. Like I'd be in my parents' basement on the internet. I didn't have T3. I was on dial-up, but we had two yep. phone lines, which yep. was really special. So it wasn't like bothering my parents for me to be on the internet. I guess younger people listening today wouldn't be aware of the fact that like, yeah, you had to use your phone line and everybody used landlines. No one had cell phones in the 90s. And so like if you were on the internet, no one else could be on the phone. But I had the same thing. My parents just left me alone. I looked at a lot of stuff on the internet I probably shouldn't have looked at, but I also learned a lot of stuff and it was pretty cool because that was, that was like the wild, wild west days. You know, everything oh, was yeah. new. Yeah. I, mi- I miss it in, in some ways, but also I uh, don't. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get into the startups as a kid? I mean, like it's one thing to just be fucking around on the internet. It's another to be like, I'm going to start a business. I was also a gamer back in the day. I still, still play some games these days, but more back in the day. And I started building these like fan sites. And that was kind of my first thing that I built online. So like I did all the design, I did all the, the code, I would do all the updating, it's like news, blog, et cetera. And that kind of got me starting to create. Uh, and from there, I started my first small business um, with a friend of mine who is also in school with me. And over the summer, we built a web hosting 
and we were both pretty big on IRC and IRC shell service, which probably no one knows about, uh, but basically it's like a way to have a bot in a channel uh, that kind of runs things. And so we were selling web hosting, we were selling IRC shell services, and we were actually making quite a bit of money. I think by the end of the summer, we were up at like, this is revenue I will share, but I don't remember exactly, but something <laughs> like five to 10 K MRR. Like we were doing what? really, really well, but hold on. How old were you? Were you a teenager? <laughs> Uh, this is, I was 16, but wow. where things get interesting is that, um, it turned out that 90% of our revenue was from stolen credit cards. <laughs> so and you probably didn't know that I, we didn't know that. And because by back then, you know, we were, I don't even remember what we were using, but it wasn't like using Stripe or something like that. And so by the end of summer, we just started getting thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of chargebacks because also people weren't looking at their online banking. They were having to wait for their statements to come in and stuff right. like that. So fraud was way more prevalent. And so by the end of the summer, we actually shut the business down, but that was kind of my first foray into like, wow, I could like create a thing and, and make a bunch of money. And it was, it was pretty amazing. What did your parents think of, of this kid who's making thousands of dollars a month <laughs> and dealing with chargebacks and credit card? Yeah. Fraud? I mean, they were, they were impressed, I think, but they also, you know, even to this day, you know, super smart people, retired professors, but they don't really do the internet thing that much. Uh, so, so they're very kind of computer novices. So they're still impressed with what I do, but they can never describe it to their friends. So whenever I see them or talk to their friends, they're always like, oh, so you do this? I'm like, no, that's not what I do at all. <laughs> so yeah, they still, they still don't grasp it that much, but they were very impressed. Um, and then when I got into college, I started kind of my first real business, which was called Typefrag, which was the first voice over IP software for computer game players. So basically what Discord is today, uh, we were doing that back in 2003 and ended up selling the business, kept going, kept repeating, starting a new company, selling it. Um, and then I, I'm here today. <laughs> cool. It's funny, like how, um, you know, on that of your parents, how people can be like so intelligent and successful, but also like that has zero correlation with how tech savvy you are or how much you want to like get into new technology. I remember experiencing yeah. this as a kid and saying like making kind of a pledge to myself that I'm never going to become obsolete. No matter how old and grumpy <laughs> I get, I'm never going to stop keeping my ear to the ground with, with what the kids are doing. And now I'm 34 and I'm not even on TikTok. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. Like I'm not on TikTok. I <laughs> don't understand all the new memes. Like yeah. I'm definitely getting older. It's yeah. just at some point, it's just like, ah, I give up. Yeah. I was talking to, uh, I have another podcast and I interview just like successful people from different, basically different like areas with my buddy Julian. And we talked to some Hollywood screenwriters the other day. And one of them is Mark Miller. And he's like the guy who writes like all the comic book movies. He's got, I think he's like the second most adapted screenwriter behind Stephen King, as in his like writings have been turned into the most movies. And we were trying to set up like Riverside and Zoom. And he was like, <laughs> can you help me install Chrome? And he called me and I was like walking him through how to install Chrome and like how to get on Zoom. And it was like a 15 minute phone call that felt like oh, it was wow. with, like my, my dad in the 90s or something. But dude is super smart and super successful. And so there's yeah. not necessarily a correlation yeah. there. No, I mean, I think there's also one of those things where it's, it's helpful just to focus on, you know, your craft and, mm -hmm. you know, you know, he's a writer. He doesn't yeah. need to know Zoom and Chrome and so on. <laughs> yeah. So I want to stick with this topic of, of being like, I don't know, this kid ahead of your time for a second, mm -hmm. because I was also pretty ambitious as a kid. And I remember what motivated me. And I remember for me in particular, it was this sort of positive feedback loop that I think people underestimate. I have probably had like seven or eight conversations with adults as a child that I remember to this day where people were very encouraging and said like, hey, you're really good at computers. Like you should keep it up. You could do this. You could be this person. You could hit this goal. You can make this much money. And as a kid, I really took that to heart. And even as an adult, I've noticed that if, especially among young people, if you 
kind of give them words of encouragement or set yeah. the bar a little higher than they might be dreaming of themselves can be really, really impactful. In fact, I just read a thing from um, Tyler Cowen, sort of a famous economist and blogger, and he was saying one of his favorite strategies uh, at his university was to take like, the most promising kids who applied to the master's program and just sort of automatically give them PhD admissions and suggesting <laughs> like they can just like, hey, push a little further. And like often they do it because they're like, oh, I didn't even think about this. Same thing with me and Andy Hackers at Stripe. Like I joined Stripe yeah. and Patrick was like, what's your ambition for Andy Hackers? And I was like, I don't know. I just think it's a really cool website and it's kind of cool to make enough money to support myself. He's like, what yeah. if you inspired millions of people to start businesses? And I'm like, what if I did that? You know. <laughs> so I wonder like, yeah. what was motivating you as a kid besides just the fact that you had this freedom and this super fast internet? I think it was mostly just motivating myself in that I kind of like getting lost on the internet back then and sort of just you know, having the lights off, maybe like a little lamp on and just kind of dedicating myself to the next five hours of a screen screen time, or maybe I say five is probably like 15 <laughs> hours of screen time. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I just, I love creating things. I love the idea of being able to build something from scratch. And I still love that today. Like every single business I start, I just, I like having like a piece of white paper and a pen and just like, okay, let's go. You know, so I really just love that idea of just starting from something from nothing and this idea that you can continually iterate on it and make it better every single hour of the day and how much work I put in, I see more benefit. So it's, it's really this amazing feeling. Yeah. It's a solid feedback loop of, you, know, yeah. you, you tweak some code, you click save, you look at the website, it's different and you keep doing yeah. that over and over and over again. You know, you make a feature, you release it, you have a pricing plan. You get money in your bank account. <laughs> Super yeah. addictive to see that kind of Yeah, and it's result. also, you know, every email you write, uh, respond to, every tweet you post, every person you talk to, every customer you talk to, every single thing is just a little bit additive and making the product and the company and the business better. And so it all adds up and it just feels really good. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a good point. Like this additive nature, like, because I've, I've worked service jobs before and like yeah. it is satisfying to like put in your hours and then, you know, get a paycheck or to do something, like teach somebody something and then have them pay you or, you know, see them do better. But there's something that's really cool about knowing like, hey, if I write this code, it's going to keep running forever. And that's not like, you know, one and done. Like that just keeps going on and on and on. So it feels like you're building something yeah. that will last and that will continue helping people and continue paying you. Let's talk about some of your uh, early startup successes. I guess we kind of already sure. have <laughs> your web hosting business. <laughs> well, briefly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're also the founder of a company called Carbon Made. I assume yeah. you're uh, familiar with Tobias Van Schneider, who's a friend of mine who I've had on the podcast because he's mm. got some police and I don't know, did he acquire Carbon Made at some point? So he he's after my time. So, you know, when I sold the business, so I had two co-founders, we each owned a third of the business um, and I exited in, I can never remember the exact date, uh, 2010 or 2011, something around yeah. that. And so I, had, I left the business in the, at that date. And so uh, two of my co-founders continued to run the business. And then I honestly don't know anything that happened since then. So <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know who owns what. I don't know who's involved and who isn't. Um, <laughs> both great guys, super talented, right. amazing designer, amazing developer. But we just kind of never really cross paths again. Right. Um, but I, you wrote something in 2009, again, going back to the early days of your blog. Uh, it was a post about the history of Carbon Made. And you called it yeah. 100,000 users and so can you. Because you guys at that time, I think it passed like 170,000 users and Carbon Made was just such a big deal. First of all, what is Carbon Made or what was it? And also number two, like not that many people were writing encouraging words back then about how other people could start these online businesses too. What made you so optimistic that people could start businesses? Do you still feel the same way today? Yeah. yeah. So first, 
CloudMade was the first online portfolio for artists and designers to display their work online. You know, really the, the first platform. In those early days, it was really interesting because no one had portfolios, no one had, uh, or online portfolios rather, no one had a way to share their work digitally. So, you know, typically people, artists and designers would go to an agency or go somewhere and they'd actually bring, you know, printed out pieces. And so for the first time ever, we allowed them to like add a link to their email to send the portfolios out. So it actually was a really fast growing business, especially when the financial crisis hit in, I want to say 2008 when there were lots of people out of work. And so, you know, people were like, oh no, I need a portfolio so quickly. And they would Google online portfolio or free online portfolio. And thankfully, thanks to Google, we were number one result for both. <laughs> so I forget the exact percentage, but it was about 50% or more of our, our signups came through SEO and primarily those two keywords. And so, yeah, so we started, we built the business and I saw all these people um, you know, getting jobs and getting work and being very thankful for the product we were building. And so then I started to do maybe kind of used to go to more like meetups back in the day in New York city. So I'm in New York city when in the early New York tech scene, and I would just help other entrepreneurs who were just getting started. And I really enjoyed that. I really loved talking to other entrepreneurs. There's no one in the world. I love more than entrepreneurs, to be honest. And so fast forward 10 years. And, and part of the reason why I started this company was really just to help more entrepreneurs, you know, start their businesses, sell digital products, sell courses, sell downloads, et cetera. So that's kind of been my whole life mission is just to help that individual, you know, get work, get paid. And it started with Carpet Made with getting work and getting paid. And now it gets, now it's with uh, Podia with, you know, selling courses, selling products, et cetera. Right. So I have like my outsider perspective, three reasons why I think Carbon Made did so well. I'm curious on your take, if these are accurate. Number one, you're kind of solving like a boring tried and true problem. You weren't trying to solve some problem that no one had ever heard of. You were helping people make portfolios. And so people were mm -hmm. actually searching for that. It was a problem people knew they had, they knew the terminology to search for. And so when they searched, you were there. Number two, timing. You were essentially early. <laughs> there weren't that many <laughs> online portfolio makers. Uh, you caught a wave, you were a first mover. And as a result, you captured a lot of the market. And then number three, quality. Carbon yeah. made was a labor of love. It wasn't like you just threw something together to be an opportunist. Like you guys made a product that you wanted for yourselves and that yeah. showed. And so when people use it, it wasn't just like, ah, oh, this kind of works, but it sucks. Let me go find another one. They were like, this is awesome. And so yeah. that combination of three factors, which I think almost anybody can do with any company, if they're paying attention to the market and the trends and they do something they actually love. Uh, I think those three things are what made carbon made successful, but so I totally agree with you. Um, I think those first two were huge. Just being a first mover got us ranking high, high in Google, which led to so many of our trials and eventually paid customers. But I think the important one you mentioned was too, is it was definitely a labor of love. And it was also a thing where any feature that we would ship, we had to make sure that, you know, my co-founder, Dave, he wanted that feature on his own personal portfolio, right? So, you know, it, it was very much like that was the quality control. You know, we're not going to ship X unless that's something that's going to work for me and other people like me. So that was really, really important, um, which is, you know, in hindsight is good and bad <laughs> because, you know, not every customer is Dave. And so some customers want other features and so on, but it did help us really keep a very tight roadmap and make sure that we were shipping only things that we felt very proud of. And I think that was reflected in our brand too, where it's like, you know what you're getting when you're signing up for us. You're not gonna get like this bloated portfolio product that you know does social and does all those other things, which is actually really interesting too, because I think we didn't do social, um, which other brands like Behance and others did. 
and they actually end up, ended up passing us in terms of like user count and so on and revenue. Um, but that was a, a feature or that was a specific decision we made is that we didn't want to do social because social doesn't have to do with like the portfolio. And, and the core of the product was to serve the customers that wanted a portfolio. So again, double-edged sword. <laughs> I like having those constraints though. I mean, the yeah. point is like, okay, you don't, you don't like have to be the best business on earth. It's okay if somebody passes you, but if you're building the business you want to build uh, and you have your own constraints, like there's, there's kind of no rules. You know, there yeah. isn't necessarily some sort of path you have to follow. There isn't like, you know, if, if you like go the, the normal route, like I'm going to go to college, then I'm going to get a job, then I'm going to, you know, work my way up the ranks. Like there's kind of like, there's books written about how to do that well. You know, there are people ahead of you who can say, oh, I did this 10 years ago. Here's what you should do. But when you're starting your own company, like you're the very first like online portfolio creator that's of note, right? You can do whatever you want. You could say, we're just going to do what Dave wants. And yeah. no one can tell and you that's wrong. <laughs> yeah. And we did a lot. But yeah, I mean, it's true. We were a bootstrap business. We were, you know, I think probably at the time I left, we were like 11 people full time, um, you know, quote unquote profitable as well. Um, so yeah, we, we weren't beholden to anyone. Right. Um, you know, it's it just ourselves in our little Soho office, which has a fame, famed history, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. What's the history? Yeah. So, well, the history is, um, so obviously you're familiar with Squarespace, but we took over their lease in this small Soho office when they were, you know, 10 or 15 people. Uh, so it was kind of fun, but yeah, we, we took over their lease. Um, and then to come full circle, the former CEO of Squarespace, Dane Atkinson is now on my board today for my current company. So, and <laughs> I actually cool. met him during the lease transfer event. So wow. um, yeah, just some, some New York City uh, history right there. <laughs> it's interesting working on startups and just doing this kind of cool stuff because you end up meeting a lot of people who end up building these huge sort of world-changing companies. And like my feeling every time is like, ah, oh, why didn't I invest? Even when I didn't have much, much, very much money, I'm like, oh, I'd have like $5,000, $10,000 into that company, I would have been rich. But it's cool to just know those people and to see that you're in the same time and, and place as them. Yeah. So let's talk about Podia. By the time you started Podia, you were a startup veteran. I mean, obviously, you started companies since you were 11. You had yeah. done um, a few companies that you had like sold and bootstrapped and exited, and it's just all done very well. Did you have anything resembling like a startup playbook before you started Podia? Did you have like rules and guidelines and, and like any sort of hard won knowledge that helped you start Podia when you when you first started? You know, all all the experience I've had in the past definitely uh, impacts everything I do today. When I was first starting out, I think what I knew most is what markets and what customers I like to work in versus which ones I didn't. And I think that really helped me. Like I realized that I really like working with individuals. Like I want to sell to an individual. I want to, you know, make an individual happy. I want to help them, you know, achieve their goals. What I don't like doing is working with businesses. <laughs> and um, I had a, had a brief startup that I did sell, but not, not, not that much money right after card made that I worked on called uncover, which was like a benefits platform for businesses. And so I had some experience working with businesses and I was like, I hate this. Let me get out as quickly as possible. And so when I was starting this, this new company, uh, I realized I want to work with individuals. I wanted to work in, in a market that would help other individuals like make money or become entrepreneurial or that kind of thing. And then there's a whole history as in, into how I started the company. So I mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, both my parents are professors at Yale and my dad actually had one of the first online courses on the internet ever in 2010, which was a um, collaboration with, with Yale and actually has millions and millions and millions of views on YouTube. Yeah. So if you search Paul Fry Yale, you'll see all of his 
classes. Um, and so I actually got really interested in, in hearing all of his stories because he would get like multiple people every single day emailing him and saying how much he, oh, thank you for bringing this course to me. I'm in China or something like right. that. And so I kind of thought about that. Um, like, oh, this is really cool. Like, um, you know, selling courses online allows you to reach people from anywhere and that kind of thing. So he was definitely an inspiration. Also back to some old New York City history, but Skillshare, the two co-founders, Malcolm and uh, Michael, rented desks from my carbon-made office. So I got to see the early days of Skillshare. Um, I was also one of the first three teachers on the Skillshare platform as well when they were still doing in-person teaching. Um, so yeah, courses were something that got really interesting for me, uh, but I wanted to do my own take on it, which was to really build out a centralized store where you could sell any type of digital product, whether it was a course, download, webinar, coaching, et cetera. Yeah, this idea of, of liking working with individuals over businesses, I think is very common. I think it's like, it just kind of seems boring <laughs> to work with businesses. Most of us don't interface with businesses on a personal level in our daily lives. And so when we sit down to come up with a company, it's just super common that I hear people say like, I want, you know, to create an app that helps friends get together. Or I want to create yeah. an app that helps you figure out local sporting events so you can, you know, go join a league or something. But I think what you did was smart because it's almost cliche now that like, Selling to businesses is easier. <laughs> businesses have a lot of money. Businesses know how to make money, and therefore businesses are willing to spend money in order to make money, and so you can charge them higher prices and sell more stuff to them. But what you did was you decided to sell to individuals, but also you're helping individuals make money. So you're not just selling to anyone. You're selling to people who are ambitious, who see some future career or some future path where they can make a lot of money, and that, I think, turns them into good customers yeah. Whereas the average individual is not really that good of a customer. Like they don't really want to pay very much because they're not going to make a lot of money from whatever it is that you're selling them. Yeah. So that's actually a really interesting insight and something I thought about for too, is that how to have a happy customer, help your customer make money because <laughs> people yes. who make money are happy. Right. Um, so this is really amazing feedback loop that we see too, where, you know, customer makes their first hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, $10,000, and they are so thankful and they're so happy to be a customer and they're happy to spread the word. And, um, you know, they'll, they'll write me a, you know, these long emails about how grateful they are about our products, stuff like that. So it's back to that feedback loop. Like it's just tremendously amazing to serve individuals. Yeah. Whereas like a business, you know, business makes money and like no one cares. <laughs> you know, sort of thing. So <laughs> yeah, I think maybe that's like a good question for people to ask themselves when they're when they're first sitting down to come up with their idea is okay, let's say this idea works out, you know, how transformative is this going to be to my customers' lives? Are they going to be like mildly happy or is it going to be like you know, they are on some new level of happiness and existence and accomplishment, and they have me to thank for that in part. And the closer you are to that goal, the happier your customers are going to be, probably the happier you're going to be because you're constantly making other people happy, and probably the more money you're going to make because you have something that's super impactful to other people, even if it's something. Yeah. yeah. So the other question that I always have for people who are starting companies, and I want to know about your early days, is um, the sort of question around ideation because it's hard mm -hmm. to come up with a business idea for a lot of people. In fact, I would say most of the potential indie hackers and founders that I talk to are kind of sitting around waiting like for lightning to strike and a brilliant idea to come into mind. On the flip side, they have a ton of ideas and they're not sure which one to work on. Which category were you on if and if either <laughs> category? And how did you decide that like Car uh, Podia was the right idea to work on compared to any alternatives? I'm definitely the, you know, have a million ideas a minute <laughs> person. Um, I think 
the main difference today is that I'm so happy with the company and the product, the team, the customers that I'm not pursuing those other ideas. Um, but I'm constantly coming up with ideas and just someone says anything and I'm like, Oh, like, Ooh, how could that be a startup? You know? Um, so I, I definitely think you need to be on the lookout. I think what's important. And when I was even working on this company, another little known fact that I don't think I've really shared publicly is that I was starting first working on this product called Playlift that never reached the let a day. But the idea there was gonna be coaching for computer game players by professional gamers. And so it was this idea that they could get coaching and they could pay you know, a fee, but then that the gamers, the professional gamers could also put videos and sell those videos and quote unquote, sell courses on videos. So I started going down that route with the, with the, the business. And then I realized quickly that uh, gamers don't want to pay because <laughs> they're cheap, uh, myself included or whatever. They don't want to pay. So it's not a good, not a good market to be they're in. They're mostly kids. They're mostly kids. And they so don't I have thought, money. Well, <laughs> exactly. So I thought, well, you know, if gamers, you know, maybe the same similar platform could work if we just open it up and made it more broadly for any type of creator. But I went down that business probably for four months before realizing that like, actually we need to broaden this out. Um, and we can't do the gamer thing for these reasons and so, and so on. But I think every idea I've ever started by month three, six, 12 is like pretty different than where it started. And what is like the first step you take after you have an idea for something like Podio? I mean, you're like, okay, you try other ideas, maybe they don't work. You're like, okay, maybe Podio will work. But at the end of the day, it's still, you're just one guy. Uh, I don't think you had any funding at the very, very beginning when it was just you, yeah. you know, no lines of code are written. I think this is another place where people get tripped up because it's really easy to get paralyzed and say, oh, there's so much to do and my ambitions are so large. How do you sort of wrangle that down into like a, a, a first step that makes sense to take? Yeah, so I think that's uh, something you were asking about experience earlier. I've been around for so long that I, I have a really good sense of what each step needs to be in terms of product development and kind of what, what uh, step you need to take first to get to step two, step three, step four, step five, et cetera. So I'm pretty good at figuring out like, okay, this is the minimal viable, like, product that we need to build and just starting there. Um, so thinking back to when we began building this product, I realized like, okay, what are the core things that a customer is going to need for them to be successful on our platform? Okay. So they're going to need checkout because they're going to need to be get paid. They're going to need some way to upload content. So, you know, some sort of upload, we're going to need some way to store that content and they're going to need like a customer list of some sort. And that was basically the bare bones. And I didn't worry about reporting and we're about any of that kind of thing. And I just uh, narrowed it down to like, what are those, you know, items, what are those list items that this product needs to make that customer successful? And I just built that. And I, knowing that, you know, there's all these other things we're going to need to build, et cetera, et cetera, over time. But like, if you start with those sort of core things that that customer is going to need to be successful and then just build from there. Um, that being said, one of the things that I always do in terms of th a thought exercises, I always plan out, you know, 20 steps ahead, not so much like, writing them each down, but like, what could this product be? Um, if we had, you know, unlimited resources, developers, designers, et cetera. And then I'll just kind of pair it all the way back. I might even print it out <laughs> on a piece of paper and, you know, just start redlining it for yeah. things that can come later. But I think that's also a great exercise. Um, some, some designers I work with don't like doing it that way because they find like they're going to get depressed when we don't actually build out their dreams. Others do like the thought exercise. And for me personally, like that's always helped me just think about what it could be before you pare yeah. it down. Yeah. You are definitely a planner. You have a post on your, uh, your blog <laughs> yeah. called life plan from like 12 years ago. And you had an entire plan for your life for the next 50 years. I know. So I, I actually 
props uh, or i was i was starstruck when the founder of meetup scott heiferman retweeted or tweeted it out like oh look at this <laughs> young guy who's this and i was like oh that's so cool <laughs> it is cool i think it's, it's super underrated to like to make these far future plans like obviously nobody knows what their life's going to be like in 30 40 years but it's funny because on here like i don't know that you were in your early 20s when you wrote this and you could tell like you're like age 33 to 40. I'm going to be working on some unknown, ambitious startup. I don't know what it's going to be, but it's going <laughs> to be. And it's happening, you know, honestly. It's, it's exactly where you are, 37, working on Podia. So like yeah. you called it. I think I have Apple CEO at 50, which is you not do. happening. Oh, but... no, you had it at age 40 to 50. So <laughs> Oh, gosh. You got to get moving. <laughs> yeah, I got three I, years. I think stuff like this is it's super underrated. Like so few of us spend any time at all, like just sitting down trying to predict the future. You know, like yeah. even people who are trying to come up with business ideas, like I have no idea what to do. And it's like, why don't you spend like 20 minutes, just sit down and ask yourself like what you think the future is going to be. Like make some bets. What do you think your life is going to be? What do you think you're going to care about? And a lot of this stuff is pretty predictable. Like you predicted that by the time you're in your late 30s, you'll probably be married. <laughs> you know, that's not that unsafe <laughs> of a prediction, right? It's probably like, it's probably likely. And you can like make plans based on that. And I think with your startup, if you sit down like and say, okay, here's where I want things to be. Here's how things might go. It's easier to chart a course to get there if you actually put yeah. some time in. And, and actually, um, I do that today still. So we have a 2025 plan <laughs> uh, for, for our company. And, um, you know, what are the things that we need to do to get to that date? And so our ambitious goal is, is um, to be the only platform a creator needs uh, to sell content on the internet by 2025. And so digital products and such. And so that's like our goal. And then we're trying to, trying to figure out how do we walk back uh, or how do we get there and how do we set ourselves up there? And again, like to that, the point earlier, it's just like every email you write, every line of code, every piece of design, every customer you talk to just helps build towards that, that goal. So another thing that strikes me as interesting is uh, about Podia is that this is a very crowded market. There are a lot of people and companies who are trying to empower individuals to make money on the internet, the sort of creator economy movement. You mentioned Nathan Barry with ConvertKit earlier. He's been a guest on the show. Uh, my buddy AJ, who makes Card, which is kind of like a one single page website builder. He has millions of users. <laughs> Are you? I have, a, I have yeah. a card as well. Super great site. Uh, there's John O'Nolan from Ghost. Another, like, I could just name like 20 people that I've interviewed in the last few months who are kind of all pushing in the same direction, which tells you that like there's a there there. Like something is actually happening and millions of people are moving in this direction. But also it's like harder to stand out. You know, how do you... Yeah get on people's radar. It's no longer the days of like, you know, the early internet where people just search for online portfolio and only one result comes up. If people want to make money online, there's a thousand things they can do besides just Podia. I mean, it's tough. I, I, I do think like it's less crowded than people think. Um, you know, there, there are definitely a lot of, of companies that work in this space, but there's the space is so big, so many different ways to attack it. Um, you know, you mentioned email, you mentioned single site builders, you mentioned like our store platform and ghost blogging platform. There's so many different ways to attack this. And I also think that it's still very, very young. As I was talking to one of our investors yesterday during board meeting, and I still feel like we're at the starting line of what this market can be over the next 10, 20, 30 years. So, you know, I, I still recommend probably to my own detriment that the creator economy is a good place for, for entrepreneurs to start companies. But yeah, I mean, it, it is vast, it's growing, it's getting bigger. COVID obviously really accelerated it. You know, I think people are becoming more tech savvy and, and you know, it's, they can use these tools more and so on. So yeah, it's definitely growing for sure. So give me your, give me your vision of the future. Because right now it's like, it seems like it's as big as it could ever get. It's <laughs> front page news constantly, the creator economy, this, the creator economy, that. Where are we going to be, you know, in your wildest dreams five or 10 years from now? 
So I wrote an um, article on our website about my 10 predictions for the 10, next 10 years, which I can share, but it's hard to predict everything. I think what I know best is the uh, digital product market. So for our market, there's a lot of different things that I, I predicted in that article. Um, the first one was that I think that community is going to play a big part, a big role in the creator economy as things grow. You know, quick plug for us, we just launched our community product a couple of weeks ago and it's been doing tr tremendously well. You know, other things were that I think more creators are going to collaborate more. So right now it's a very much an individual thing where you're a creator, you sell a course, you sell a download, you have a webinar coaching. I think more people are going to team up with others. They're going to work in groups. I think companies are going to form where, you know, the three of us, the four of us work together to build this digital creator product line or whatever. There's a bunch of other ones. I think live components are going to become more and more of a thing. Um, you know, we obviously saw that during COVID, but I think that these tight, you know, week-long courses or one-day events, that sort of thing, it's going to just continue to grow and become more and more popular. I think one of the issues with online courses in general is that you buy them and then you have to self-motivate yourself to do it. But when there's right. that live component, you know, it's, it's easier to get like something on your calendar, you know, go meet with that teacher, go meet with your classmates, et cetera. And then I think there's going to just be a lot more collaboration between, you know, the audience, the people that are taking those right. courses, those products. So that's like four of 10 and <laughs> some of them are pretty, <laughs> some of them are pretty out there. Yeah. Um, I think also one of the big booms will be when Google and other search engines start to recognize digital products better. Um, so that's also in my article, but basically, you know, you search for uh, soap and you get like those big, you know, buy soap from Amazon or whatever, like big tiles on Google. I think that'll come to digital products as well. So, you know, when you're searching for courses and downloads and stuff like that, there get more prominence in search engines, which should lead to more sales. So yeah, there's a lot happening right now. Yeah. Um, and I, I like yeah. this, like the intersection of creators and entrepreneurs. I mean, creators are entrepreneurs, but yeah. I think for the longest time, at least online, it kind of mantra has been like, well, you need to be a software engineer, at least know some software engineers, and you need to make some sort of app or website, and you need to probably raise money and charge a subscription fee. With the creator economy, it's like, actually, you could have none of those skills, do none of those things, basically just write our podcast, our creator community, and just like talk and share and teach and make money online that way. And there's yep. so many resources and so many tools for basically supporting you that you don't need to code anything. And there's so many yeah. different ways and platforms for people to find you that you don't necessarily even need to be an expert marketer to get the word out, although that helps. Uh, what are your thoughts on, you know, if somebody's listening and they maybe don't want to create an app, but they do want to make money online as a creator, what are some things you think creators need to know, to sort of get ahead of the pack and have a chance at being successful and making a living doing something like that? You know, this, this applies to creators as much as it applies to entrepreneurs of all sorts. One of the things like I really believe in is this idea of persistence. And, you know, a lot of people will, will start something, whatever it is, and then they'll give up when the, uh, the going gets tough. Even my wife, who has a pretty successful online course that launched six months ago, she did quite a bit of sales, but then mm -hmm. things kind of just stopped for her in terms of new customers. And I was actually just talking to her this morning and she actually got, she woke up to a $500 sale and it was her first sale in four months. And I was like, isn't that amazing? Like, isn't that super motivating? She's like, yeah, I'm like, I'm going to go back on this train. And I think people just need to stay persistent. They need to continue right. to, to build it out again, back to that iteration. Like I really believe that anyone, no matter doing whatever they're doing is just like be persistent, continue to improve, you know, get better every single day, you know, read articles, read blogs, take courses, you know, et cetera, just listen to podcasts, just continue to educate yourself. How do you keep going when things aren't working? 
That's the hardest thing ever. <laughs> when you're pouring your heart and soul into something and you don't have any, you know, $500 checks coming in the mail and you're wondering if it's all a waste of time. How do you know when to quit? How do you know when to keep going? I mean, it's, it's really tough. I, I always say, you know, keep pushing forward, keep pushing forward. I was actually just talking to a friend of mine, another entrepreneur right before this call. And he's just like, I'm so tired running my business. Like it's, you know, it's doing well, like we're making good money, but I'm just like, I'm just so fed up with the customers. I'm so fed up right. with the market. Like, I just want to give up. And I'm like, look, this is how it goes. <laughs> you know, you know, it, you got the good times, you get the bad times, but eventually if you can get through the bad times, you get back to the good times. And so I was trying to like pick him up, motivate him. And he's like, I know you're right, but like, it's just really hard right now. And, you know, we have to do all these things to get through. And I was like, go do those things, <laughs> you know, like, you know what you need to do. And in his case, it was like, they need to make some hires. They potentially need to raise some amount of money to like get them into that next st uh, stage, even if it's friends or family or VC or whatever. So he knows what he needs to do. You know, we need another developer. We need this, we need that. But yeah, it's, it's tough. But I think to your question, the first thing you need to do is be like, all right, what are the, you know, 10 things I need to do to figure this out? And how do I get through to that next hump or over that hump? And if you do all 10 things and you completely exhaust them and you're not getting anywhere, then right. I think it's, it's safe to, uh, to back away. And right. maybe it's not 10, maybe it's 20, maybe it's five or whatever. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think it gets thought exercises to be like, how do I get through this? You know, I like that. what are the things I need to do? Again, so basically it's planning. If you have absolutely no idea what your yeah. goals are or you have no hypothesis for what will make you successful, then it's really hard to ask yourself at any moment in time, is this working? Because you don't even know it's supposed to work. But if you do what you're saying and you say, okay, if I do these 10 things, I should find success. And then you do those 10 things and it doesn't work. It's a lot safer and easier to be like, I should quit this thing. Yeah. And I think even to, you know, one of those things might not work, but it might unlock another question that you need to ask yourself. Mm -hmm. So, you, you know, you might add another to do to your task list. So maybe it goes from 10 to 11 to 12 to 13. So, you know, you'll continue to um, unlock different ideas that you can pursue. So, yeah. Was there ever a time where Podia wasn't working? Because from the outside, oh, yeah. it's, it's, <laughs> seems like it's like been a raging success the entire time. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Um, so I, you mentioned this briefly, but it was just me for the first year. And I was getting kind of not losing interest. I definitely had interest, but I was sort of getting like slightly depressed about, you know, where was I going to take this thing? And one of my thing, one of my, uh, you know, tasks on my artificial list was I needed to hire a contract developer to help me get through this next product development phase. And so I did that. And that was one of the things. And then actually the funny story there is that it was a three week contract and he's still working for me today. <laughs> <laughs> Got him. <laughs> Got him. Yeah. And uh, that that unlocked a, a prototype that we had, which unlocked um, some fundraising, which unlocked another thing. But definitely those first few years were really trying. Um, you know, we raised, I think, 750K in, in year two or something like that, or year, mm -hmm. year three. And, you know, we, we almost ran out of money and we were able to lock in some more some more capital, but you know, we had very few customers. I think we had like 4k MRR in that year. Like we were doing wow. very poorly, but we, you know, kept, kept at it, stayed persistent, kept on iterating. And, you know, now we're doing super, super well. So what turned things around? Like if you could go back in time to the, to the Spencer that was running this $4,000 a month <laughs> business and it was struggling and worried about running out of money, like what would you tell him that would help Podia succeed? I think what I finally understood, and it took me probably 15 years of my career to get there, is how damn important marketing is. And now I, I probably focus more on marketing than any other part of the business. 
not entirely true, but I, <laughs> but yeah, I, we, we hired our first marketer and he ended up becoming our CMO and he was extremely talented. I really fought for him. I actually took the train down from New York city, city to Baltimore to recruit him. He wow. was not going to sign. And I took the paperwork and I said, sign, <laughs> <laughs> um, it took me like four hours to convince him, but he did. Wow. Um, and what he did really say helped. To convince him? Well, I told him I would, I would match his salary request, even though it was way more money than we had. Uh, right. at the time. And I told him I would give him a budget. I would give him resources. I would, you know, be there to support him. I would never get in his way and all these kind of yeah. things. And it, and it worked out. He, he also, I remember he sent me, I was like, send me all the questions you have about the business. And he sent me like 15 questions and I wrote probably 20 pages, single spaced wow. answers. And he was like, very impressed. <laughs> yeah. Really very you impressed. Want this guy. Yeah. And, and so that really was a turning point for us because you know, we were probably, I think we were three developers, myself and a designer at the time. And our marketing consisted of telling friends and, uh, right. you know, a few different things. And, and he came in, helped us tell our story better, helped us working on content, which has been a big driver for us in terms of growth, he helped us grow through set SEO and um, partnerships and affiliates and all these things. And yeah, he, he definitely helped us turn around the company. So put, in, put in the marketing work. Yeah. Again, Marketing is so important. Super important. <laughs> and it's like, not, yeah. it's not that hard. Like the things you're listing aren't rocket science. They're not like unheard of marketing channels. But I think if yeah. you were, if you're the sort of prototypical indie hacker who really likes designing things and really likes coding things and building things and wants to make the very perfect you know, product, it's pretty easy to neglect all that kind of boring yeah. seeming telling people about it part. It definitely marketing is one of those things where it's just compounding and that the sooner you start, the more benefits you're going to have in the future. But mm -hmm. it is very depressing in those early <laughs> three, six months when you're starting marketing and you're seeing like very few results, yes. but it, you know, you got to start somewhere. Yeah. If you look at like an exponential curve of a company growing, like those first few months where it is compounding exponentially it still looks really flat. And yeah. that's the depressing part you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, we went from 4k MR to 5k MR, you know, and we're yeah. like, but that's a huge jump It is, <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, you gotta, you gotta celebrate those wins. So. Podia, I think, is the first business you've built where you raised money. I know you bootstrapped at yep. least two or three businesses. That you yeah, every built. every company before this bootstrapped. What what changed? Why raise money? And what do you think other people should do who are traditionally have been bootstrappers? How should they think about this? So I wasn't planning on raising money for this this company. Um, I put in thirty thousand dollars of my own money to start the thing. You know, hire that developer, etc. And then. Back to the the great New York City community, um, a friend of mine was like, "Hey, you should meet this this um, VC. His name is Nick. You know, he's just starting this fund, um, but he's just a cool guy. Like, I think you guys would kick, kick, should kick it or whatever." So um, I met him at a beer garden in Brooklyn, uh, which is very very New York. And um, you know, we sat, we just hung out for an hour, and then he's like, "Oh, hey, are you working on anything right now?" Um, and I was like, "Yeah, actually, I am." And pulled out my laptop, um, showed him some screenshots. We didn't even really have a working prototype at the time. He's like, this is really interesting. Like, it's very cool. Like, we're doing pre-seed investments. Um, Notation Capital is the firm. They're they're bigger now, but at the time, I think we were their second or third investment. And then two days later, he sent me a term sheet and was like, I know you're not thinking about raising money, but like, what about raising money? <laughs> and I was like, after a year of kind of struggling by myself, you know, not earning a paycheck, you know, killing my savings, et cetera, I was like, I'll take this and I will use it to get the resources that we need. Cause I feel like we have something here, but we're short, you know, a few people to, to get to the next step. And so I kind of fell into it, but I'm really happy I did because I think if it wasn't for raising money, this company wouldn't exist because I would have either 
you know, given up or, you know, run a really small business and never been able to build out the, the dream product that was in my mind the whole time. Right. Yeah. Sounds like you went through some tough times and your investors came through for you. And I'm, yeah. for one, happy the podium is here today. You're profitable <laughs> you. and you're getting your employees to buy houses yeah. and you're helping the creator economy. And, and our customers are super happy too. <laughs> exactly. And you're, hey, you're making good episodes of the Indie Actors Podcast. It's yeah. win, 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 win all, all the way around. Yeah. Well, listen, Spencer, it's, it's about that time. I always end the podcast with one question, which is, what's your advice for sort of struggling indie hacker out there who's not sure if they want to start a company or maybe they've started and, and things are hard? What's something impactful to you that you think they can take away from your story? So um, I, I really like when we were talking about earlier about, um, you know, figuring out that, that list of tasks you need to, to give yourself to figure out whether you have something. So I, I really recommend that, that approach. I think that's really good. First, identify the problem that you either want to solve or that you're having in your business, and then just yeah. figure out all the ways that you can potentially solve that problem. And then just go down the list and check one after the other. So yeah, so I, I always tell entrepreneurs, persistence is super important. Iteration is the most valuable thing ever. Compound interest is huge. <laughs> like these are things that I think more people should learn at, at an earlier age, but you know, you can certainly like apply those to your startup and just keep, keep building, keep growing. Um, and then as to, we, we just talked about like, start marketing, especially today. And everything is so saturated. You just gotta, you gotta get out there. I love it. Well, listen, Spencer, thanks so much for coming on the show. Can you let listeners know where they can go to find out more about what you're up to at Podia, where they can find your excellent personal blog <laughs> that you haven't posted to in a couple of years, but it's still I've been tweet storming instead. <laughs> I think that's the better um, approach. That's like marketing yeah. and blogging mixed into one. Yeah, yeah. So uh, twitter.com slash Spencer Fry. I'm very available on Twitter, so people can DM me. Happy to chat. My blog is spencerfry.com, but yeah, there's a lot of old posts. I've got some gold from 2010, if you want to read those. And then our website is uh, podia.com. And yeah, Podia. shoot me an email. Podia. Yep. The plural of podium. Exactly. <laughs> I learn something new every day. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, Spencer. All right. Thank you so much. Bye.